This week, we're celebrating 400 episodes of Life and Faith. You couldn't have paid me a million dollars a year to do something different. Why does consciousness exist in the first place? Forgiveness and reconciliation takes strength. It was a bit of a culture shock when I hit Sydney. We hope the truth will out. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. I'm Justine Toe. And I'm Natasha Moore. And somehow we have arrived at our 400th episode of the podcast. It's kind of crept up on us a bit here. You've been around for all 400, right, Simon? Can you remember how this thing started out? I have been and I can. Years ago, we started doing, and did for a while, five-minute radio spots four nights a week. Just this is well of, before my time. It was a bit. And then after a while, we realized that the kind of material we were producing wasn't really suited to that format. And so I believe it's back in January of 2012, we moved to 15-minute slots, which felt more suited to what we were doing. And in keeping with the how it started, how it's going meme format, How's it going now? Because we've gone from 15 to 30 minutes, right? There was kind of a blowout to like 45, 50 for a little while in the middle there, to be honest. <laughs> there was. I think we had to pull it back and we ended up settling on 30 minutes. We felt like that was a good time, commutes and you know sessions at the gym or whatever. But it looks great. It's good fun. Uh, it's a big focus for us at CPX. We try to put a lot of thought and effort into it, try to experiment with the different kinds of stories that we want to tell. And interestingly, over that period of time that we've been doing this, of course, podcasts have exploded. Every second person does a podcast, but we've kept doing it and uh, it's great. It's good fun. It changed a bit last year, of course, um, as the world changed. It did. And we used to be, let's be honest, quite resistant to the idea of not having the person in the studio. We we always talked about, you know, that's so much better and, and it kind of is. But last year really broke that down, didn't it? And having people on Zoom from all over the world has kind of opened things up for us and people seem to be able to handle that. Yeah, I mean, not having to wait for people to come visit us at the ends of the earth (laughs) is a help. Especially now. I mean, in case this isn't obvious, we do really enjoy making this thing. Uh, So today we thought we'd kick back, have a chat about what we love about it, what it is we try to do here, and also hark back to some of our favorite life and faith moments. Yes, and one of the things we hold to here at CPX is the idea that Christian faith really has something to say to every corner of life. And the breadth of what we get to do here in the podcast is an embodiment of that idea. Even in the last term or so, we've talked to an artist, that was a particular favorite of mine, a physicist, a Guardian journo, and a former Obama staffer. We've tackled difficult topics like consent and sexual assault and how to raise kids who want to do good in the world. We launched our colleague Mark Stevens' mini book about thinking, and that's just to begin with. We did an episode on Jane Austen as well. That was really fun. (laughs) Let's not forget that one. No, no, we did. And we, we all have our pet topics or dream interview subjects. And thinking about how faith works, what it looks like in the 21st century, that gives us a pretty big scope of things to tackle. Yeah, and it also makes sense that we talk to lots of different people, especially across faith lines. I think it's clear that we're definitely a Christian podcast, but in a secular society, we have to expect that we're going to be rubbing up against different ideas and beliefs all the time. 
And so I think it's really important to us that we don't just talk to people who see the world in the same way that we do. Usually this means I am up for talking to someone that I otherwise would be very afraid of, which <laughs> which is everyone I want to point out, really. But it's good to kind of push yourself in that way. Mm. Gather your courage. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously the fun part, really, of what we do here is who we get to talk to. People are incredibly generous with their time. You know, we put these requests out there and are always thrilled when people say yes. Um, the word podcast opens some really surprising doors. And just the things that people do with their lives, the things that they've been through, uh, you really get a front row seat in this job to some of the ways that faith is making a real difference in the world. You know, we get to talk to the guy who's wandering around Ibiza talking to and praying with the world's party goers. I mean, this is pre-COVID, obviously. Or we get to talk to someone who works undercover rescuing kids from sex trafficking. Um, but, you know, let's show rather than tell here. Uh, we've each picked an episode that we want to kind of get all nostalgic about. Uh, Simon? You got to talk to one of your heroes, and actually more than once. Yes, the novelist Tim Winton, he's come into CPX a couple of times, and uh, yeah, it's been great both times. And one of those episodes wound up being called Hope is Violence. Can you give us an insight into that title? It's kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, Winton's stories, if you're familiar with them, are kind of set doggedly in the rough and tumble of real life, and especially the brokenness of our lives. Um Hope is violent comes from a poem, actually, but it's referring to Winston's interest in the way it often takes majorly disruptive events to wake us up from a slumber. But they end up being a way for light to come in, for sort of hope to be born. And so his characters are almost always from the wrong side of the tracks in a way. And there's violence. Uh, these people are often unlovable in many ways. I asked him about his obvious empathy for those characters. I guess I'm less interested in the attractive people. Everyone's got a story. Everyone's got a secret. Um, everyone's valuable. And I, you know, it sort of upsets me, particularly with boys who are non-compliant or who make mistakes or who simply follow the scripts that have been written for them. They're the boys who get kicked out of class. They're the boys who end up in the justice system. They're the boys who end up filling our detention centres and jails. And a lot of them have done terrible things, but a lot of them have just, you know, their destiny's almost been written for them by their their culture and their family. What chance did they have? They're, they're living in the only world that they know. They're repeating the patterns that have been laid down before them. And um, sometimes we punish them for their faithful adherence to the script. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, I, I just think we avert our gaze from them. You know, I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't have to see a kid in a restraint chair in a spit hood to feel some first twinkle of curiosity or empathy. Yeah, it's quite intense, a lot of this interview. Um, though there's some lightness as well. I really love the next moment uh, in this episode where the great Tim Winton makes a little joke at his own expense. Your characters have some existential moments out in the wilderness... Oh, hell like me. <laughs> and he, he went on after that to say this really wonderful thing about being out in nature and our connectedness to, well, it's God, really. Yeah, you're diminished as a human if you're not engaging somehow with the natural world because you're not, 
if you're not engaging with creation, you're not engaging with the divine. You've you've you've, you've rolled the shutters down. Mm. Um, and this idea that you can somehow, you know, maintain some kind of engagement or relationship with with the divine through abstract thought only. You know, you sit in your room and you know <laughs> adhere to. Uh, um, Orthodox thinking um, <laughs> that just, that's, that's just cut that dog just doesn't hunt. We often find ourselves talking to people whose interests run parallel to ours, even if they're coming from a wholly different faith perspective. Now, Justin, you've found yourself in that kind of chat with Guardian journalist Bridget Delaney uh, when you were talking to her about her book, and I love that title, Well Mania Misadventures on the Search for Wellness. Yes, and this chat was so interesting to me because it was as though Bridget's book was chronicling the spiritual lives of young people, especially in the absence of organised religion. So you had people who looked to diets or meditation or yoga in order to seek some inner peace. And Bridget was really clued into that spiritual gap, as you can hear in this clip. I grew up in a a household where both my parents are Catholic. I went to Catholic schools. So I had a lot of theology and a lot of um, messages and lessons and you know, I did religion at school. My life wasn't devoid of that type of content. But a lot of people younger than me who were going to yoga, I got the sense that they hadn't had any instruction in their lives that had a moral or spiritual element. Some of the yoga classes I was attending kind of really stepped into that breach. So a lot of classes at about 75% of the way in will have this thing that I call a nugget of truth where they'll start talking about bigger themes like connection or um, your heart or kind of compassion. And, you know, a lot of people seem to really receive those messages you know, kind of really hungrily, um, and that that was really interesting to observe. I mean, not everyone who goes to yoga is a spiritual seeker, but there is a lot of it. I think yoga can make you start thinking about things, but it's not really enough to fill that hole. You get a real sense from that episode that people really are seeking meaning in life and, you know, of the sincerity of that search. I really got a sense of that with Bridget. Um, and in another part of her book, she raises the fact that she's dissatisfied with Buddhism because she's hearing her yogi counselling her to accept things as they are, essentially to not resist injustice. So when we spoke, I asked her whether she'd resolved that question for herself. No, I absolutely haven't resolved it. Um, it's a constant tension. I'm um, really interested at the moment in Stoicism and I'm doing a lot of reading like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and stoicism doesn't really have room for that either for the activism angle you know it's all about what can i control and if something isn't within my control then i have to just let it go so stoicism hasn't given me the answers i don't know i'm still i'm still looking what about you natasha which episode are you feeling nostalgic about today well, as you know, Simon, sometimes I get a bit of a bee in my bonnet about some topic or other and spend months or even <laughs> a year or two being like, don't you think it'd be great to do an episode on this topic that I'm just personally obsessed with? 
Um, and sometimes you, know, you convince it. <laughs> sometimes I do. You win some, you lose some. Um, and, you know, it's also about waiting for just the right interview to come along. Um, so the episode that I did, this one is also from 2019 on murder mysteries. Was that for me? Yeah, it's called Murder Most Popular. Yeah, I'm not sure I totally nailed the title. Um, we went through a lot of options. Um, I nearly just called it the murder episode. Um, and we went with Murder Most Popular in the end um, as a play on, you know, the Shakespeare quote, Murder Most Foul. Also Bob Dylan song. Well, yeah, apparently it's like a new Bob <laughs> Dylan song. Um, hopefully that means more people get it. Um, but, you know, we I swapped out. Murder Most Foul for Murder Most Popular because the point of the episode was why are we so obsessed with murder, with crime shows, detective novels and so on? What does that say about us? And you talked to a literary scholar about this, Alison Milbank, while she was in town. And you also talked to an actual cold case detective. Yeah. So cool. Jay Warner Wallace. He even has a great name for a detective. <laughs> Um, one thing I love about this episode is that even though he and Alison Milbank come at this question from very different angles, actually I thought what they had to say chimed really well and especially on the subject of human nature. Agatha Christie's, they're called cosy detectives <laughs> on the bookshelves in Britain. You can actually, there's a whole genre called cosy detectives. But I don't think Agatha Christie is particularly cosy. Um, W.H. Auden wrote a, an essay called The Guilty Vicarage where he says that what happens in that kind of 1930s type story is that a murder happens and everybody is potentially guilty. That's the thing. It uncovers this cosy world and shows that everybody is fallible in some ways and everybody might have done it. And then the detective comes along like a kind of priest, finds the guilty person, sort of forgives, as it were, all the others and restores order. That's so interesting. I mean, of course, with Father Brown um, and in Grantchester as well, the detective is the priest. Yes, Father Brown, I think, is a lot deeper than Grantchester. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I'm afraid. The wonderful thing about Father Brown is he's these dumpy little Catholic priest whom nobody notices and he solves mysteries in which people often think there is some supernatural thing going on. They can't explain it. And he always kind of demythologizes this and actually shows what really happened. And he does so by imagining himself into the mind of the murderer, because he always says, in other circumstances, this could have been me. So it's a much deeper understanding of the human. And here's Jay Warner Wallace, similarly talking about worldview and human nature and our own possible guilt. You know, worldviews basically answer three important questions. How do we get here? Why is it so messed up? And how do we fix it? And your worldview is going to have some component, uh, some description of human nature. We've had experiences with humans that either shape or rattle what we think of human nature. I work cold cases. These are the cases that went unsolved for 30 years. I don't work serial killers. Those are different kinds of cases. Put it this way. When you knock on the door of the neighbor of a serial killer that you're now taking to jail, that neighbor is likely to say, oh, I'm so glad you're taking that guy to jail. That guy's crazy. I mean, it mm -hmm. smells bad over there all the time. There's all kinds of weird noises over there. He's a weirdo to begin with, and he's always digging holes in his backyard. I'm not <laughs> quite sure what to make of all that, right? Uh -huh. But then when you take someone to jail for my kinds of cases, where a guy did a murder 30 years ago and got away with it, 
and you knock on the neighbor's door and tell them, yeah, I'm taking your neighbor to jail for this case from 30 years ago, they'll typically say, that, oh, there's no way. There's no way that guy could – no, I've known that guy for 30 years. He's a great guy. And, and that's because this guy's a killer, but he only did one murder. He did one murder 30 years ago, and he's basically lived like everybody else ever since. Now, granted, one's enough to make you a killer. Yeah. But in, in essence, he's displayed the character that all the rest of us have displayed over the last 30 years. He's your banker. He's your neighbor. He's your teacher. He's your professor. He's your deacon in your church. I mean, these are guys and gals that, for the most part, look just like everybody else. Your whatever your worldview is that describes humans, you've got to make room in it for this description of humans. And not every worldview does a good job of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once it does, then you'll see yourself differently too. Because the truth of it is, is that. You know, but for the grace of God, every single one of us is that same killer. It just hasn't been provoked to the point of actually committing the crime. This is the 400th episode of Life and Faith you're listening to. And if you're a regular listener, you'll be familiar with my voice and Justine's and Natasha's. Someone you won't have heard from even though his fingerprints are all over each episode, is our producer, Alan Douthwaite. And I think it's fair to say that nothing around CPX would work without Al. So it seemed only fair to actually introduce him to you all. It's taken quite a bit of convincing because Al really prefers being behind the scenes. But it's really great to have you here, Al. Thank you for appearing on the show. You're welcome, Justine. Now, compared to everyone else at CPX... You've had the most colourful job history. Give us a sample of the kinds of jobs you've had over the years. Yes, this is often a conversation point over a coffee when we were in the office. Um, I've done a few things in my life, um, but I know what you're getting at. I think the ones that you guys want me to talk about (laughs) is I worked in a hospital for a while. I was the guy who wheeled patients into the operating theatre and then cleaned up the mess afterwards. I played music for a few years professionally, um, or I should say I was a drummer. I don't know whether that counts as a musician. <laughs> that counts. No, no, we're going to give you that out. <laughs> you give me that one. Were cruise Good. ships involved? Were cruise ships no, involved? No, no, cruise ships were involved, fortunately. That was Hugh, okay. another producer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my predecessor. But the most interesting one uh, is I spent some time as a private investigator. Awesome. So cool. <laughs> yes, but he definitely can't talk about that. <laughs> so um, what do you do on the podcast, Al? Uh, well, I do all the stuff behind the scenes, as producers do, so... Um, help keep you guys on schedule and make sure we get an episode out every week. <laughs> Record, edit, master, post, etc., etc. Yeah, mostly the hurting, hurting us. Mm. There have been a few times when I've had to have little conversations about we're re- interviewing three, four people for a thirty-minute episode, and each of those interviews goes for like forty-five, fifty minutes, <laughs> and we have to wade through what is fascinating material. But um, yeah, that just uh, drags things out. But that's okay. I think we all have to put our hand up for that one, Al. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Equally guilty. It's just a shame so much good stuff has to end up on the floor. Sure is. You're real brutal with this too, Al. Um, but can I ask you um, your most memorable moments or episodes that you've been involved with? Yeah, there's been a lot. Uh, we've met some fascinating people and covered some great topics. Uh, but one that really comes to mind is um, an episode we did in 2017 called Empty Plate where Simon, you and I were in England doing something uh, for the documentary and we just got this last-minute tip-off of this couple we should go and speak to in Liverpool uh, and they were absolutely fascinating. Uh, 
They were just great welcoming people, uh, opened their house up to us and told us about their lives. And what they're doing in Liverpool is fantastic. But uh, there's also a connection because I'm a long-term Everton football club supporter. Uh, and this guy was the chaplain to the club. So uh, we also had a great chance to chat about the coach that just got sacked and what players they were buying. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I remember that one. He, that was the least amount of preparation time for anyone uh, of any interview we've ever done. We were literally on the freeway from, I think it was Oxford, going up to Liverpool. I called him. He'd never heard of us. I said, we've got a crew here. We've been told you'd be great to talk to. Any chance at all this afternoon, which was our only possibility, you could speak with us. And he said, I'll put the kettle on. Never <laughs> they were so that. humble and welcoming. Yeah. Um, Henry Corbett was a, a fascinating guy who went to Eton, uh, which is the school that the Royals go to. Uh, he actually opened the batting for the first 11 uh, at Lords for them. Somebody obviously on a trajectory to great things in life who – uh, got confronted by the Christian message and and had to think very carefully about it, ended up realising the truth of it and totally changed his life. And here he was working in the poorest government area in England, um, trying to make people's lives better rather than pursuing what could have been a very high profile and uh, wealthy career. I was uh, born in the 50s, growing up in the 60s. So as a teenager, I thought science had the answers and I wanted to be a reasonable human being. And I thought Christianity was a sort of nice idea, but wishful thinking. And I went to Kenya for a year to help out teaching in a local school. And I remember it, had, it was a Christian organization. I said, I'm sympathetic, but agnostic. Went up to university, and a guy called David Shepherd was speaking uh, on a Sunday evening. And as far as I was concerned, he was a cricketer for England who'd made 100 against uh, Australia. And I'd listened to it uh, on my uh, little transistor radio. So I went to hear him. And I remember coming out of that thinking, I will give Christianity one last look. And then when I've shown that it doesn't actually make sense, because it's a bit unlikely, I'll look at Buddhism or maybe other things and, and you know, to be a reasonable human being. I was reading classics, so uh, I began to look at the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and I certainly didn't believe it all, but the more I looked at him, the more I thought just to say he's a good guy didn't quite fit the evidence. And I had lots of discussions and debates, and someone challenged me to go away and write down all my objections. And as I wrote them down, I began to think, actually... I've got answers for these, and I'd need more faith to stay as an atheist than to become a Christian. Let's not pretend, however, that interviewing people goes smoothly all the time. I mean, we really don't have a great track record with Lisa Sharon Harper. Do we, <laughs> oh, don't remind <laughs> So Lisa Sharon Harper is an activist, an author, and she's the founder of an organisation called Freedom Road. We first spoke to her, Natasha and I first spoke to her a couple of years ago, and um, we lost the entire interview, a tech malfunction, and we felt really bad about it. Because- <laughs> I mean, that's that's a gracious and generous we, Justine. You were interviewing, I was doing the tech, and the thing just did, like it seemed to be recording fine, and then as these things happen sometimes, and always on the worst possible occasion with an overseas guest who we just happened to be able to get um, nothing. And she was so great. But then we again spoke to Lisa for our episode on American evangelicalism in the lead up to the US election in 2020. But this time, rather than having some kind of tech malfunction and losing the recording, I got so excited talking to her that I kicked my microphone off the desk <laughs> and I broke it. I don't know how you did that. 
Why were your feet? You I mean don't... you kicked the desk and then that... No, 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 sorry. I shifted my legs and the, there's wires everywhere and the microphone went flying. Okay. But in my defence, I swear, it's not just me because everyone has had a Zoom call like this. When you say that whiteness is a big deal here, clearly... Hello? You just, went, you just froze. Oh, did I? Sorry. Okay, you I'm just froze. Am I still here now? You just froze, Justine. Okay, hang on. Okay, I can kind of hear you now, but you're kind of frozen. Okay, so if you, I turn my... Your image is still frozen. Oh, man. Okay. And now I can't hear you. So this is the problem with Zoom, right? You need a reliable internet connection. But luckily, we wound up with some great material from Lisa in the episode An Evangelical Election. The people that I grew up with in, in evangelicalism who were never, ever taught that the scripture has anything to say about politics. The scripture has anything to say about ethics. The word ethics was never mentioned. So it was only about my relationship with Jesus and being a good person. What I found in my exploration of the biblical concept of shalom, which led me to write my last book, The Very Good Gospel, is that actually the, the, the understanding of, of the very good news is actually about ethics. It's actually about the reality that God wants the image of God to thrive all over the earth. And so it matters how we treat each other. It matters how we, um, how we legislate. It matters the policies that we say we want or we don't because they are going to determine the lives and the capacity to flourish for millions. One of our guiding principles at CPX is the conviction that actually the Christian message is deeply surprising. In the public square, it can sometimes be seen as old-fashioned or boring, certainly as predictable. But we think that's a watered-down version of what you actually find when you open up the Bible and counter Jesus on the page, or when you meet followers of his doing sometimes quite astonishing things with their lives. So surprise is something we aim at in the podcast too. To close out our 400th time round the life and faith orbit here, we wanted to share with you some of our more unexpected interview moments. Yes, one I'm going to talk about is when we interviewed Joel McCarrow, who is a performance poet of some note. Uh, we interviewed him largely about his life and a book that he'd just written, but I wanted him to read one of his poems. So I'd brought the book into the studio and I thought he'd need that. And so I was ready to hand that over to him, but he said he brushed it aside and said, no, no I don't need it. And then this happened. My daughter still makes me smile. And my son, he makes me laugh. Yet the girl with the HIV scabs all over her body and the dirty streets of Kampala, she would not stop laughing and pulling faces at me, her revelry, a refusal in the face of the disease that burnt through her body. Yet the boy in Burma who had just seen his family shot, he still loved to play paper, rock and scissors. He would beat me every time. Yet the children still chase each other daily through the bombed out buildings of the broken city that they do not realize, so they do not let the delight die. Yet they fly kites, yet they dance, yet they dream, yet the mothers still sing. And I have heard their song, and it sounds like hope, and it sounds like jubilation, and I do not understand it. Still joy resides here, where she should not be. There she thrives, more vibrant than anything. 
this was an amazing moment for us. I remember sitting there in the studio with our then producer, Anthea. I reckon we both had our jaws on the desk. It was just a kind of, we were blown away at that moment. Totally unexpected. And I, I thought it was amazing. I do remember both of you, like Anthea and you, Simon, emerging from the studio looking a little bit shell-shocked. Like, I was like, there was some deep therapy happening in that studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, was a, it was quite a performance. He's a performance poet and, and he really did perform well that day. <laughs> um, for me, in terms of a real surprise, uh, in 2019, I put together this episode that looked at a key moment of Australian history, the Wave Hill walk-off which is an extremely significant chapter that birthed the Aboriginal land rights movement in this country. My name is Benson Lindyari, came from Kagurago, Wadi Creek Station. But this episode looked at that well-known event from a little-known perspective, this claim that Vincent Lindyari, who led the walk-off, saw himself and was seen by others as a Moses figure leading his people away from oppression to a promised land. And apparently... Lingiari even had dreams where this bright figure that he believed was God told him that he would get his people's land back. And I remember when I was talking to Mark Yetika Paulson, he's the son of the Indigenous missionary who baptised Lingiari, I was really struck by what he had to say when I asked him about those dreams. Yes, I have heard of those stories. Um, they um, not stories that were passed on to me to tell, so I'm glad that you brought them up. They're the kind of stories that when I hear them, I have no hesitation in being able to say that uh, those stories are as true and as real as someone having the audacity to say, I have a dream that uh, racism will be changed in, in the United States of America. When people receive a sense of calling or dream from uh, the thing above or the, the transcendent, the, the voice of God, as it were, when that's the kind of dream that they testify to, it can't be ignored. It's their story. It's their part of what drives them to make sense of the sacrifice that's needed and the, the work that's needed for people to push through. And I've got no doubt that um, they're the sorts of dreams that would motivate a leader to uh, hold an eight-year campaign as opposed to a eight-day or eight-week campaign. So remember back to the beginning of what he said. I've heard these stories. They weren't passed on to me to tell, so I'm glad you brought them up. And in some ways that blew my mind, right, that you might potentially not share a really fascinating part of the story, and that's because you have a particular relationship to that story. There's a real dignity in that, and I, I felt really privileged to be let in on the secret. I got chills, quite frankly. Yeah. I suppose the people that I get most amazed and moved by are those who have so much more courage than I do. Um, one of the most wonderful and also scariest people I've ever interviewed was Valerie Browning. Um, we had interviewed her nephew, Andrew Browning, who has worked for years helping women in Africa performing fistula surgery, um, and we re-aired that interview um, just recently. It's amazing as well. So he was already this incredible person we met. Um, but he told us in that interview about his aunt, Valerie, who um, he calls the black sheep of the family. So she's this tiny Australian woman who married into the Afar people of Ethiopia and has lived there for decades. And she is hardcore. Like when you listen to the interview, I think you can actually hear in my questions how intimidated I was by her. <laughs> When I gave birth to my daughter, who's now 28, 
that was in Djibouti. I had a cesarean section. I was three hours on the operating table and they couldn't open up my clamped down uterus. The child was pronounced dead and I was dying. The death clothes were brought <laughs> to wrap us up. So um, I knew how low I'd gone and I knew that I couldn't expect anything. I just had to accept. And that's the way it is. I've been bitten by a snake and almost died from the snake poison. What else? Well, years years ago with the Eritreans, a bullet went straight through my hair. Uh, yeah, and more recently had a bit of cerebral malaria. But when you're going to die, you're going to die. There is no stopping. And we, we, if I say we as Western people, we have no right over local people at all. If we take that right, it is so wrong. It is so, so wrong. So if they don't have the ability to take a helicopter out of the country and get medical help, I don't either. And that's the way I go. I don't take a different position to them ever. And I know I shouldn't. Are you never afraid? No, no. Fear is a useless thing. It's useless and it is self-indulgent. It really is. I stopped that quite a while ago. I did. And so I can run in the front line. I've had to be with war zone problems, with famine problems, with all sorts of problems. It doesn't matter. And in the end, death is going to come. You can't stop death, by the way. It's related to life. But here in Australia, they don't even know that. I mean, that's really amazing. But no, we could be snapped up tonight on the way back to visit my daughter anytime it's possible and we should respect that utterly respect it and not be frightened of it either if you if you have a christian belief well you've got nothing to lose nothing at all not a scratch why do you protect yourself why life without risk is not life it is simply not life and finally to bring us home christos Cholkas the famous Australian author of novels like The Slap and Barracuda. We talked to him about his book, Damascus, which gives an amazing picture of how Christianity radically changed the ancient world and introduced concepts that we value so highly and take for granted, but that, he shows, came directly out of the Christian narrative. You couldn't get a better distillation of the significance of Christianity and from someone who doesn't share the faith. I have a crucifix that my aunt Yanola gave me in, in Athens, right? Over 25 years ago that I wear close to my chest because of a love of her. But I, I had not really thought about what that symbol means until I started work on this novel. And that you have a faith that says, where is God? God is not in the noble Olympian heights. You know, God is not in the palaces. God is actually the man or the woman you step over who is homeless on the Princess Street Bridge. God is actually the man or the woman who's in prison at the moment. God is the most abject person. That is still revolutionary. That is that is still hopeful in 2020. <laughs> Yeah, 
You've been listening to the 400th episode of Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, Justine Toe and Natasha Moore. Thanks a lot for listening today and in general, especially to those of you who've listened to quite a lot of those 400 episodes and keep coming back. We really appreciate you. We hope you'll stay with us and tell others, get them in on the conversation. Next week, episode 401.